Please join me in the reading of God's word from Colossians 3, 1 through 11. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, uncircumcised circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. What a joy to be in this beautiful room. This is not typically where we meet, but God has provided uh, this beautiful space, and we have a, a good number of guests this morning, so I'm thankful that, uh, that you have joined us uh, to, to worship the living God. At our church, we keep with the tradition of many, many generations of saints before us that on the Lord's day, the heralding of the gospel, the preaching of God's word is the pinnacle of our worship. Amen? So please join me in prayer as we meet God in his word. Blessed Lord, you have caused the Holy Scripture to be written for our learning and edification. Thank you. By your freely given grace, give us ears that are open to hear and eyes that are uncovered to see your glory through the comfort of your holy word. May we embrace and forever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, grant to me boldness and clarity to speak to your holy people, your saints. In Christ's name we pray, amen. There was a a long season of my Christian walk where I truly believed that I would never have victory over certain sins. I thought freedom from the tyranny of sin and I thought that the peace of God that I desired would only be experienced after I died and was taken to glory with him. And though I tried to be a, a good Christian, I tried to live morally, I felt constantly defeated. 
For years, I felt beat up by my sin and worn out by the Christian life. And because I allowed certain sins to persist in my flesh, I wondered if I would last. Would I be able to fight the good fight of the Christian walk, as Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 4.8? Have you also felt this way about the weight of sin in your life? Maybe you currently feel like you are always dominated by the weight of sin, even now. And I want to just be real. I appreciate it when people keep it real with me. I have heard men and women say to me since I've become an elder even, things such as this. They have said recently, I can't imagine not struggling with lust. Or I feel like I will always be angry at my father or my mother. Or I'll never be able to forgive what that pastor said or did. Do you hear the defeated tone of these statements? I understand these things. I relate to that feeling of doubting, ever experiencing victory over sin. But should this be the tone of Christians? If you are a believer in Christ and you are abiding with him and you have the power of God's spirit in you, should that be the tone of your life? Should we feel defeated by sin's power is my question. And sin's power is real, right? Or should we, as we have already read in our text this morning, have a different approach and perspective on our sin? And here is the idea of our sermon. So catch this. It's simple. The idea of our sermon this morning is this. If you are a Christian, then kill your sin. If you are a Christian, then kill your sin. I realize that does not sound deeply profound. One thing I really appreciate about our our church at Kyrie and Grace is we like to to go deep into the, the mysteries of God. However, I think what we really need to hear is this very thing. If you are a Christian, then kill your sin. So hear me, okay? Maybe just do a mental check. I'm going to ask two simple questions. Just think and answer these questions honestly in your head. The first question is, and check the box if it's yes, mentally, are you a Christian? Second question, are you actively killing the real sin that is at war with you every day? And now that not-so-deeply-or-profound statement may mean something a little different, right? Because I think in today's modern Christian mindset, many of us have only really confidently checked one of those two boxes. If you are a Christian, then kill your sin. So I want to approach this sermon with these two questions. Are you a Christian? And if you are, what does that mean for you? And two, are you actively killing the real sin that is at war with you every day? Now, we've been in the book of Colossians for a few months now. 
Um, I'd like to start with just giving a, a quick recap on the purpose of the book and where Paul has led us to up into chapter 3, where we are today. Now, this book teaches explicitly clear a very important doctrine that all Christians really need to grab a hold of and identify with. Um, Ryan and Brandon have preached really well on, on this doctrine, which is union with Christ, the Christian's union with Christ, meaning that every believer... Every Christian that's put their faith in Jesus Christ has something that theologians call union with Christ. And this union with Christ has significant, world-altering, soul-impacting implications for us. So what's going on in the book of Colossians? Well, the Colossians, in a nutshell, and what I've read and understood from scholars, is that this church in Colossae is, is built, is, is a young church, it's built up of Jewish, former Jewish members and former pagan, pagan temple-worshipping, uh, Greek-speaking people, right? And they've come together, and they have this newfound faith in Jesus Christ, yet they want something a little bit more than what the gospel is giving them. See, they... They thought that through man-made experiences, they could stimulate themselves to the point where they would have a closer connection with God on earth than what the gospel would be able to provide with the gospel alone. And this, this, this false teaching, this mixture of both Jewish and pagan philosophies um, are come together in things like this, right? And we, we've read them already in chapter 2, and I'll just recap a couple of them. One is asceticism. Asceticism is the strict discipline over your body that if I, if I can withhold things that I, I typically enjoy, right, if I, if I almost hurt myself enough, then I will have deeper spiritual aspirations, and I'll be able to gain them because the flesh and the body is bad, so I need to, to hurt my body to free myself from the, 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 the cage of my body so I can experience more spirituality. We're even told that they went beyond this and even started consulting with things outside of God like angels or even demons to guide themselves into spiritual advancement. Now to us, right, this sounds obviously wrong. Praying to an angel or a demon to get secret heavenly knowledge or fasting in order to hallucinate and therefore have heavenly visions? Obviously, this is not what we are striving for as Christians today, right? They did these things because they wanted that spirituality. They wanted that Christ plus, as I've mentioned. They desired more spiritual reality in their daily lives, which isn't a terrible thing to desire, is it? And if for your whole life, you had experienced these, these things as pagan temple worshipers. Why not bring some of these things into your newfound Christian faith? And this is where Paul sets them straight. That the desires for earthly experiential living in Christ are found in things not outside of Christ. Look at verse 223, where Paul has previously listed the earthly approach to deeper spirituality. These things have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. 
There Paul makes it clear. No value. Nothing. There is no value in these things, he's saying. These man-made practices to attain heavenly wisdom and experiences will not work. In fact, they only serve to damage our understanding of the gospel completely. Whenever we add outside things to the efficacy of the gospel, what we're actually doing is taking away the efficacy of the gospel. Because the gospel is what? It is the power of God for salvation. The gospel is not the power of God and a little bit of man. It is the power of God alone. God's glory alone. Amen? So how does one then attain that heavenly experience that the Colossians were desiring deep inside? Because that's not a terrible desire to have, is it? Well, Paul is clear. He says, those things you desire that you're seeking outside of Christ are actually only found in Christ. They're only found in union with Christ. Let's look at verses 1 through 4 in chapter 3. Paul writes, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So let's hunker down in these four verses for just a moment. What is Paul saying here? And I want to draw attention to two things among the many things that he's saying. First, notice the past tense phrases used to describe the Christian's position. Namely, He's speaking of our union with Christ. Secondly, observe the present tense commands on how to live because of our position in Christ, namely our communion with Christ. And I'll give you the answer up front. Here it is. What we will learn about our union with Christ, which is our eternal, what is our union with Christ? Our union with Christ is our eternal position in Christ. We are adopted, we're told in the scriptures, into the family of God. We are hidden in Christ, we're told in the scriptures. This has profound meaning, as I mentioned before. That means nothing or no one can separate us from that union that we have with God, unless they're more powerful than God, which we know nothing like that exists. And that position in God, in Christ, leads us to living in communion with Christ. Communion with Christ, for now, is living out the reality of that position, church. We live out the reality that we, while we're here on earth, of the true reality of our spirit in him, where he's seated. We are to walk in him. In him. What does that even mean? We read it in Colossians 1.10. We read it in 2.5. How do you walk in him? Well, our union with Christ explains it. So first, the past tense phrases in verses 1 through 4 that I think will really set the tee up for us to, to whack the ball. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. You have been raised. You 
have been. Something is truly new about you when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Your spirit is, or your spirit has been, raised with Christ. Amen? That is wild, man. That is so awesome. If you have put your faith in Christ, you have already been raised with Christ. What is happening here? Well, if our spirit is raised with Christ, let's ask another question. Where then is Christ? Because we should know where our spirits are, right? We want to be responsible spirit owners, right? Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That's what we just read. He's seated at the right hand of God, which is a reference to Psalm 110. But amazingly, in the New Testament, when this Psalm 110 is used, it's not usually referencing his resurrection, but it's referencing his ascension. When we talk about baptism as in, in the church, we know that we associate with Christ. <clears throat> We associate with Christ's death and burial when we approach the water and we go down into the water and we go under the water. That's his death and burial. And when we are brought back out of the water, we associate with his life and that resurrection life. But do you know that we also associate with Christ in his ascension now? This is phenomenal. This is, this is profound, church. This is backed up again in verse 3. Read verse 3 with me. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. If your life is hidden with Christ in God, then there is a reality about our union and position in Christ which should result in something significant in our Christian lives. Jesus is in the heavenly throne room of God, right? He's seated at the right hand. That's a throne room experience that, that, that where Jesus is right now. But we've also studied Hebrews recently. And we know that that throne room is much more than just a throne room in a kingdom. It's also a temple. Where is Christ presently? He, Christ resides in the heavenly throne room temple. Where does our spirit reside now? There is a reality of being unified with Christ that we have already have the inaugurated citizenship of heaven through Christ in our union. You, church, by faith, are in heaven with Christ. You are citizens of the heavenly throne room temple in Christ in your union with him. This is amazing. Second, let's observe the present tense commands now, okay? You have been already in the past. Now, what the implications does that position have for the Christian today? Well, it commands us how to live ethically in God's world today with our dual citizenship. Verse 3.1, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seek Seek the law of the new land. Live as if you truly are a citizen of heaven today. Verse 3-2, set your minds on things that are above, not <clears throat> things that are on earth. What are we to do? We are to seek and we are to set our minds on heavenly things. 
Here Paul makes it explicitly clear, in my opinion, that one cannot obtain the heavenly sanctuary perspective on earth apart from Christ. Remember, this is what they were searching for. How can I have that heavenly throne room, sanctuary, temple experience? How can I have that experience? Paul says, in Christ you have it. In Christ you have it. Why are you starving yourself? Why are you conversing with demons? You have all of the fullness of God bodily dwelling in Christ, and you are unified with him. This is wonderful news, Christians. This is our position. This is our union with Christ. Get excited, because this is where we are right now. You cannot gain more of God. You cannot gain any more of heaven than you already have in Christ now. You have all of it. In him, you have received all of God in heaven by faith, Colossians 2.9. And ultimately, Paul is driving the church to accept this reality because there is real power in our union that drives our daily living called communion with Christ. Now let's return to the hypothesis of our conditional statement. Let's return. If you are a Christian, right, that's the hypothesis of the conditional statement, right? If you are a Christian, then kill your sin. If you are a Christian. Are you a Christian? Check. Amen. What have we come to understand about our position as Christians then? That we have union in Christ. This means that we are given citizenship into heaven and we are spiritually with Christ now in the heavenly throne room temple. That's what I mean when I say, are you a Christian check? And now we are moving to the conclusion of our conditional statement. Then kill your sin. If you are in Christ, then kill your sin. Here's what, where the, the whole book of Colossians shifts from from union to that living it out. You see how Paul has to set that up because it's so profound and so amazing? And once we understand it and worship God in light of that reality, it's going to change the way we live ethically in the world. It's going to change the way we see God. It's going to change the way we pursue him because we have the fullness of him. Let's read verses 5 through 7 in the second half of our message. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. And here's where I think a lot of Christians get held up, church. Put my sin to death, Paul? Well, I would love to. <laughs> I tried. feel like I can't. No matter how hard I try, I feel like my sin is always remaining with me. What do you mean then when you say, put my sin to death? How could you make such a statement? Well, we must not miss the one word here that gives us both the confidence and the power to live in such a way. And that word is, Therefore, in verse 5, therefore, if you have been raised, if you have been raised with Christ, 
If you are a heavenly throne room temple citizen, then know this, that your relationship to this earth and its curses and its temptations and its nagging sin struggles have fundamentally been changed in your union with Christ. Notice what Paul is not saying. Paul is not saying, put to death the earthly sin in you so that you can become a heavenly citizen. Praise God he's not saying that. Praise be to God he's not saying that. What is he saying? He says, because you are already a heavenly citizen, therefore, put your sin to death. Here our union with Christ again empowers our communion. And because of our position, we are now called to kill and mortify our flesh. And when I say flesh, and when the Bible says flesh, it's not saying our physical bodies are bad. That's not what, what, what we're talking about. God created human flesh on the sixth day, stepped back, looked at it, and said, what did he say? Very good, he said. Very good. What I mean and what the Bible means by flesh is our sinful nature. That, that, that nature that enslaves us before we were set free by Christ. What the cross, church, what the cross has accomplished was more. What the cross has accomplished was more than just forgiveness with sin. Though that is already infinitely more than we deserve, we don't deserve for God to deal with our sin through his death. But there's something even more happening than just mere forgiveness of sin through the death of Christ on the cross. Christ took our sins upon himself as the sacrificial lamb. He died in our place. He was buried. He was resurrected. But more than our guilt, which is real, and more than the oncoming judgment and wrath of God, which was real, against us was dealt with on the cross by Christ. We are told that the power of death and the power of sin was killed on the cross. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said that the death of Christ was the death of sin. Turn to Romans chapter 6, please. Romans chapter 6. We'll start in in verse 5. Often, when we think of Jesus' death on the cross, we think of substitutionary atonement. That Jesus died in my place. And amen, this is true. But at the same time, the Bible says that Jesus' death doesn't mean that we escape death. We think we hear substitution and it's like Jesus died and we're like, whoop, I, I escaped death. I don't have to die. Jesus died. It was Jesus' death, not my death. It missed me. It took Jesus instead by his grace. That is not what the Bible says, in fact. It says the opposite. It says that those who are in Christ have union with Christ, have died with Christ. Verse 5, Romans chapter 6. For, <clears throat> for, if, uh, for if we have been, notice that past tense again, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a res- resurrection like his. And we know that our old self 
was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Paul is saying that our old self, our flesh, sinful nature self, the things of earthly that was, that was, is brought to nothing in Christ. It's brought to nothing in him. We are set free completely by the death of Christ. Let's keep going. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. If you've died with Christ, you will live with him. Alert, alert, union and communion. Do you see it? Do you see it's everywhere in the New Testament? It's beautiful. Verse 9, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. The death of Christ was the death of sin. Verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider your position in Christ. Dead. In Christ, you're dead to the power of sin. Remember those defeated statements that I told you I hear all the time? Those defeated statements that I believed in my own Christian life? Man, we're miss, we, we, we miss this. We miss this power that we have in Christ. In verse 12, our last, our last verse in, in Romans 6, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body or your earthly body to make you obey its passions. And here is the key to all of the saints. That apart from Christ, we are totally enslaved to sin. And we have absolutely no power apart from Christ to kill sin. None. Apart from Christ, sin only reigns in us. But Christ has defeated all sin. And any sin in your life that has been defeated by Christ can be and must be defeated by those who are in Christ. I hope you didn't miss what I just said right there because that's the key to all of this. Let me say it a different way. Church, we don't simply get a license just to go kill sin. We go and kill the sin that has already been killed by Christ. How do I kill sin? You can't, but go kill the sin that's already been killed by Christ because you have union in him. This is what Paul is saying. This is why union and position is so important for the Christian. And the sin which Christ killed is the only sin that we can kill. And rejoice because Jesus killed it all. (laughs) There's nothing that he hasn't killed. There's no sin in you that he didn't die for. Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. Paul goes on in verse 8. Turn back to Colossians 3, please. But now you must put away all, uh, put away, uh, put all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. And by the time we get to verse 8, it's, we just have a different perspective on it now, don't we? 
Paul gives us two lists of five sins. Back in verse 5 and here in verse 8, these lists are not, to be meant, are not meant to be exhaustive, but they get to the point, church. Our first list in verse 5 contains sexual sins and covetousness, and it's, covetousness is desiring something that you don't currently have. And there's this idea in the text there that, that all sexual sins are summed up in covetousness, which is idolatry. The second list in verse 8 speaks of attitudes mainly, which lead to obscene talk. So the overflow of an evil nature is an evil tongue. But either way, the point is clear that we were once apart from Christ. We once lived in cultures that glorified sex and greed and selfishness and obscene talking. And we ourselves were ruled over by these sins. But no longer. We have a new citizenship by our union with Christ. The first two words of verse 8 remind us of our position. Paul says, but now, but now, saints, but now as heavenly throne room temple citizens, put these things away. Kill them. And let's talk a moment about killing sin. Mortifying sin. Because if you are a Christian, you must be killing sin, right? And I want to make clear, as Paul makes clear here in Colossians 3 and also in Romans 8, that we um, are to have a specific attitude. Christians are to have a specific behavior towards any sin that lingers in our physical bodies. We are to see sin and kill sin. We are to kill sin and mortify sin. Sin is not some static idea according to the scriptures. It's not just something that if, if I choose it, then it will go bad. No, it's saying it's at war with you. You are at war with sin right now in the Christian life. We've already read Romans 6.12 that sin, which is, all, which is lawlessness, can reign in us, and it says, make us, make us, obey its passions. That's what God says about sin. And I suspect, because I've done this in my own Christian walk, that we make two common mistakes when we consider sin. First, we assume that sin is way too powerful that we cannot have victory over it. Our first mistake is that we think it's too powerful and we cannot have victory over it. But we have learned that whatever sin Christ has killed, we have victory over and the second mistake I think we make about sin, sin is that we assume it's not as powerful as it truly is. I know I just said the two opposite things, but I think we live somewhere with both of these. That it's not as dangerous as it truly is, but I'll never be able to conquer it. I realize it's opposite. But what I mean when I say we assume it's not powerful as it is, is, I, is that what I'm getting at is that we don't handle it for what it truly, truly is. We don't live among it as we truly should live with our sin. Now imagine someone handed me up here a basket and said, hold this. Inside of it, and I, and I hold it, and they say, inside of it is a snake. Obviously, I would say, ooh, right? <laughs> like, why are you giving me a snake, a basket with a snake in it? But I wouldn't freak out either, you know? That would, I don't want to look like a, you know, you know so I would, I would hold it, you know, <laughs> and I'd be like, all right, I'd rather this not be around, 
I, you know, but I'm not going to like run and like chuck it off a cliff or something. I'm just going to be like, all right, you know, I'll be tough. I'll hold a, a basket with a snake in it. But then imagine they're like, okay, but that's not any ordinary snake you're holding in that basket. It's an inland type in Australian snake. Now, a week ago, I would have said, I don't know what that is, but still, ew. But now I know about this snake. It is the most poisonous snake on the face of the earth. One drop of its venom can kill 100 men in 45 minutes. One drop, 100 men in 45 minutes. That's a dangerous snake I'm holding in that basket at that point, right? But now that I know what I'm holding, imagine that lid flies off. Imagine that snake jumps out and dashes at me. At this point, it's a fight for my life. In that moment, I'm doing whatever I can to survive this, this snake. I'll throw books at it. I'll scream. I don't care. I'm just, listen, it's, if it's me or you, all right, snake ain't going to be me. I'm not going down that easy. See, we don't treat sin like it's a real threat. We're like, oh, it's just this thing in a basket, and it's probably contained for now, right? We don't see it for what it truly is, as life-threatening and dangerous and poisonous. Paul doesn't say, church, ignore your sin. Paul doesn't say, hey, treat your sin like it's an annoying roommate and just like annoy, uh, ignore it as much as you can. He doesn't even say, church, tie up your sin, take away some of its power, and live free in Christ. That's not what he says. He says, kill it. Get the machete out and cut off the head. Go to war, he says. When there's a, pa- a poisonous snake attacking you, you don't simply ignore it. You go into battle mode. You wage war with your sin. Don't play around. Church, listen, don't play around with the things that God says to kill. John Owen, in my opinion, has written one of the most important books on this topic entitled The Mortification of Sin. I commend it to all believers. I encourage you to read this book. Owen gives insights practically how to kill our sins. It was the book that God used to change my life and change my perspective on how I lived with indwelling sin, how I saw it, how I treated it, how I repented, how I brought that sin into light. I want, to say, I want to mention just two things I've learned from that book. I, I hope that it encourages you in your understanding of how to live and kill your sin. First thing I learned was that the mortification of sin is a habitual killing of sin throughout our whole lives. Sin will never be fully destroyed this side of heaven. On one hand, we're told to kill sin, but elsewhere in the Bible, we're told that sin will never fully be defeated until Christ returns. So how can both of those things be true? How can I kill something, but I know, also on the other side, it's not fully ever going to be taken away completely from me. This seems like a fool's errand, right? To kill something that really never will be killed fully. Well, what what John Owen makes clear is, is that we are to wage war, and over time that the power of sin will be lessened in our lives. And the power of the Spirit will help us gain consistent victory over our sin. See the difference? And the second thing is that we must never forget the potential power of our sin, even as it lessens over time. A mistake we may easily make is that once we begin to have some victory over certain sins, 
We stop pursuing war with it. And in time, it comes back with a vengeance. Putting to death what is earthly in us is a process of continually putting it to death. Small victories are not the end of the fight. We fight until the end. Church, this means that successfully killing is not when we ignore the temptations. Hear me out. It's not when we ignore those urges in our minds, right? That's not killing our sin, right? Sometimes we think, well, killing sin is not acting on lust or not acting on greed or not acting in lying to preserve myself, right? Right? Take a step back. Once those desires even come, take that and take it to Christ on the cross. That's killing sin. It's even those temptations that you're feeling. Pick them up and take them to the cross. That is killing sin. That is the work of the Christian continually every day. If you are a Christian, then kill your sin, Paul is saying. It's the pattern of our spiritual life. Now, a lack in killing sin might be an insight into your spiritual state. A lack of killing sin might be an insight into your current spiritual state. You heard all of what I've said. You've heard all of what I said, and you're like, you know what? I'm a Christian, but I'm not, I'm not killing my sin. Some of it, the big ones I kill, obviously, but like, I'm okay with some of them. Not that big of a deal. <laughs> Ask yourself, even with fear and trembling, if you are raised with Christ and seated with God in heaven, why has your relationship with sin not changed? If your position has changed, how come your communion with Christ has not changed? You see, it's easy to love the things that God loves But do you hate the things that God hates? Do you hate the things that God hates? Are you killing the things in you that God hates that are in you? Humble yourself, church. Don't speak peace into your heart where there's no peace. If you are a Christian, then kill your sin. Now allow me to close with this last thought. If you are not a believer in Jesus... Don't take what I said this morning and begin this mission of trying to kill the bad habits in your life. That is not what I'm talking about this morning. If you didn't say with confidence and clear confidence that, yes, I am a Christian, or you don't even know what that means, you must start with your relationship with your creator and your judge. The truth is, you cannot have victory over your sins because only one is victorious over your sins. It's not you. It's Jesus Christ alone. Before the foundations of the earth were laid by the word of God, Jesus' mission was to kill the sin that killed his image bearers. So, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, look to him who knew no sin but overcame it by his power and die to it that we might become the righteousness of God. Don't look inside yourself. You cannot save yourself from the wrath of come, the wrath of God that is to come against all of these things. First, put your faith in Jesus. Be hidden with him in God. Experience true freedom 
forever and sing with the saints that this is all my hope and peace, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all of my righteousness, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the power that you give to us freely in Christ. We thank you that through our position that you have reached down and pulled us into by grace, one that we have not earned, one that we don't deserve, one that we trample on every day by our decisions, God, that through that union with you, Lord, we have been given the power through your spirit and the instruction in your word to live free from sin. I pray you use this word this morning to draw all believers, Lord, into war with sin. Help us to hate the things that we allow linger in our hearts, the things that you hate. Cause us to hate them and kill them, Lord. Let us take this seriously on this side of heaven. In Christ's holy name we pray, amen.